While they're heading out, let's lift our corporate prayer together. Father, we thank you for all of the goodness, all of the blessing, every spiritual gift that we have received in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we can have the sure knowledge that we are inheritors with Christ, the most prestigious position possible because of his work on our behalf, his total victory over sin and death. Lord, it is with that foundation, that solid hope that we come to you with thanksgiving this morning, despite every circumstance. Lord, help us to remember your goodness and so give you praise. Lord, right now there are many in our congregation who are experiencing trials of many kinds, many who are sick, others who suffer lack in other ways, whether it's relational or financial. Lord, we pray that you would be our supply. Not only do we trust you that you are capable, but we know that you are a good father who loves us. And so we thank you that you are granting us everything of eternal value. We thank you that you are giving us everything we need to accomplish your purposes in us. And we thank you that we can ask you as our good father and receive everything that would be of help to us, and that you protect us from anything that would be a hindrance. So, Lord, we ask for healing. We ask for the finances we need. We ask for friendship. And, Lord, we ask also that you would use your church as your hands and feet to meet every need according to your glorious riches. But, Lord, we ask that you would glorify yourself in us, even through the things that we suffer as we hold to the joy of our salvation and are firm in the hope that you have granted us. We ask that you would do this in us for the glory of Jesus and that we would be your church. Amen. Because our uh, mission work in India has, or I shouldn't say it's been hampered, but the way we normally do it has been hampered, we have a couple of things um, happening right now that I want to let you know about and also invite you to partner with if you feel led. Um, normally, we send a team to India to do a pastor's conference every year, and we are coming upon a, another year now where that doesn't look like it's going to be happening. And so what they have been hoping for there um, is that we would raise money to put together uh, the equipment they need there so that we can live stream pastors' training um, to them as they would gather. And so there's a bunch of different equipment. There's a, a list, and if you want to know the details, you can talk to Larry, my dad. Um, he's the one who normally goes and who has all the details, as I said. Um, but... They also would like us to kind of up our commitment and do uh, regular weekly training rather than once a year training. Um, so those of you who are uh, elders in training and elders in our church, we have this uh, great responsibility and privilege. 
Another thing that we've been struggling with in our ministry in India, in this particular area, uh, Andhra Pradesh, uh, there are very, very few resources for Christians and pastors in their native language. We um, have scoured the internet, talked to various scholars and groups, and, and found almost nothing uh, of help when it comes to commentaries and resources, especially for pastors to preach from. When we preach here, we access hundreds of volumes a week of research, historical, and, and linguistic uh, study so that we can help to understand what the Bible meant in its context. We've been, uh, on a yearly basis, teaching these pastors how to preach this way and then realize that they have almost no way to study. Uh, and so, uh, we have found a solution, a wonderful solution, and uh, we ask that you would pray for this and also partner if you feel led. Um, one of my mentors at Briarcrest, who he was at the time the head of the New Testament department there, is a Bible translator, and he uh, has been, he's worked on, on major English translations, but mostly he has worked on translating the Bible into languages where there is no Bible. Now, we have a Bible in uh, Telugu, but we don't have commentaries, but he has written a series of commentaries uh, that he is willing to give to every one of our pastors in India, hundreds of pastors. He's willing to give it to them for free. Um, now, an English commentary won't help them, so we are currently paying some people in India to translate these commentaries into the language of the people. And so, if you would like to partner with that, you can also talk to Larry. Would you just raise your hand? He's in the jean shirt there. God is, is doing some amazing things. There's more things that are kind of just on the cusp that I want to tell you about, but I should probably wait until they're a little bit more confirmed. But there are people partnering together. God is doing an amazing work during this time. You know, there is nothing that can possibly be happening that would hamper or hinder God's work and what He has chosen to do. And we are just excited to get to be a part of it. I get to read this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19 to the end of the chapter. This is uh, the same passage we were in last week. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paran Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger." When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 
When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear it to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Now, last week we began uh, the first part of what became a two-part sermon, and so if you were not with us last week, you should just pause now and go back and listen to the first message. Um, for those of you who are with us here in person, uh, we're going to just briefly review. Uh, we talked at length about God's choice in salvation, election. And the first point was that, number one, God sovereignly provides the recipients of the promise. Not only would God keep all of the promises He made to Abraham and Isaac, but in doing so, He will have to produce the recipients of the promise as well. The people of God do not exist by natural birth, but are born of the Spirit, They exist because God brought them into existence as a people. Of His own will, James 1.18, He brought us forth by the word of truth. And so recipients of God's promises are produced only by the will of God. This is why Isaac and Rebekah are brought to a place where they must pray for an heir because they know that their reliance is on God alone. And so then we spent most of our time exploring what the Bible clearly states regarding the second point taken from our passage, number two, God sovereignly chooses the recipients of the promise. And this we began to see in the oracle that God gave to Rebekah, Genesis 25, 22 to 23, she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, this verse is quoted throughout uh, the New Testament when talking about God's choice in salvation, choosing who he would adopt into his family. Before they had done anything, either good or bad, God chose Jacob for his own to be adopted into his family, to become his heir according to the promises. Esau was not chosen in this way. Now, there remain many unanswered questions about why God chooses who he does, But one thing we saw made clear throughout Scripture was that while God does not choose based on our works and morality, what we have done, He does choose, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29, the foolish, the weak, 
the lowly and despised, so that their only boasting will be in Christ. So we know for certain it is clear that God's choice is not conditional upon our works or choice, but we do know, number three, God unconditionally elects according to His purposes. It is not an arbitrary or random choice. God is bringing about everything that He has purposed for His own glory, that all boasting should cease except boasting in the Lord. And so we saw that Jacob, the younger son, was chosen, as were the younger sons throughout Genesis, because this is a way of God showing He's choosing the weaker, the lesser, the one who needs His help. So now as we continue the message this morning, there's one final thing about God's choosing which is revealed from this oracle Rebecca received about her unborn children, and then we'll move on to more of the practical application. This is that, number four, God's sovereign choosing causes conflict. The prophecy tells us that God has chosen and destined this man Jacob in a special way. God has taken one who is low and despised and has overturned conventional power arrangements. But this is, it is also this designation by God, this choosing, that begins the trouble that is to mark Jacob's entire life. The prophecy Rebecca receives calls for, right off the bat, division between brothers. The right of the firstborn, the primogenitor, was not simply one rule among many, but the linchpin of the entire social and legal system, which guaranteed rights and privileges to the firstborn son. But that same practice, which protects the order of society, is also a way of destining some to advantage and others to disadvantage. And so when God chose the younger over the older, He upset the natural order, the the order of society, and He prepared the way for opposition and antagonism. Now, you might think it's strange to speak of God causing conflict. Is He not a God of peace? But think of every single narrative in Genesis. Where does the impetus for the conflict come from? When God receives two offerings and favors Abel and not Cain, what is the result? Cain's murderous response is his own, But God caused the conflict. What of the families of Ishmael who was rejected and Isaac who was chosen? What of Joseph and his older brothers? When God starts giving this young man vivid dreams of ruling over them, what is the result? The act of God both caused the conflict and then resolved the conflict in their favor. And so the oracle to Rebecca discloses something crucial about God. Because he is a God who is in conflict with the world and its systems, to be called by God is to be called into this conflict as well. 
Jesus said to his disciples, John 15, 18 to 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. To be chosen by God is to be hated by the world. Because God is in conflict, those called into his family will experience that same conflict with the world. James 4.4 says, Whoever wished to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so there is an irrevocable conflict between God and the world. And when God chooses people for his own family to be in relationship with him, they are now moved outside of right and peaceful relationship with the world and its systems. Have you ever felt like you don't belong? Like you are at odds with every worldly system? That is what it means to be a believer. To be called out of peace with the world and into peace with God. Jesus brought his people peace, but that is a peace with God, not a peace with this world. Luke 12, 51, Jesus says, Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Matthew 10, 34 to 36, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Hey, wait a second, this doesn't agree with our Christmas carols. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, you might find this all shocking because even our Christmas carols misquote Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So it's not peace on earth, peace to men. It is peace with God and those with whom he is pleased. Jesus brought peace with God to his own, not peace with the world. There will be no peace, no ceasefire, until all is brought into subjection under his rule. Our God is not a peacekeeper. He is a peacemaker. Final and lasting peace will come only as a result of his total victory over every enemy. Listen, when we talk about the God of peace, think of Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a very peaceful act from our God of peace. He brings peace with his own by crushing his enemies. And so there's a tension we see here in the prophecy about Jacob and Esau's life before they're even born, but there's a tension that we'll see throughout the life of Jacob. He lives a troubled life, a life in conflict by God's own decree. The conflict is a result of God's election. The call of God is not only a call to well-being, but it is also a call to strife and division. It's the the commitment of God to Jacob that both causes the conflict, 
right? It's upsetting the normal balance of things. If Jacob was the elder and now God says, I'm going to make you the one who receives the blessing, everyone would just be like, oh, that's great. That's the way it's supposed to be. But God chooses to upset this social system and causes the conflict and then brings the conflict to be resolved in his favor. Moving on in the text, verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Now, Esau sounds somewhat like Harry in the original language, which is the second of his descriptive terms, but later he and his descendants will be referred to as Edom which is related to his red coloring. And in verse 30, 30, his exhausted gasping for red stuff. In fact, in in the Hebrew, he says, red stuff, red stuff, as he's gasping, pointing to the stuff that we interpret as stew that Jacob is cooking. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom. Verse 26, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Esau was 60 years old when she bore them. Right from the beginning, we see uh, Jacob is acting out what God had already declared before their birth in verse 23, struggling for the best position. There's already division right from the beginning, not because of a choice, but because of God who wills. Right from this moment of birth, God's divine plan is in operation. Jacob's name sounds like heel, uh, which has a very different connotation today. Uh, Nobody uh, believes that Jacob's parents were like, let's call this guy deceiver, supplanter, he, heel actually had a different connotation. The, the name came from the idea of a rear guard, someone who follows at the heels to protect. And so for a second-born son to come out on the heels of the first-born son, they're like, yes, this guy is the rear guard, the protector. Or if it's a, a shortened version of a longer name, it can be, um, may God protect him, or God has protected, which would be particularly appropriate in view of of Rebecca's painful and uncertain pregnancy. And so Jacob survived this terrible pregnancy, and so they would even see in his name, God has protected him. But like Esau, Jacob's name takes on new connotations because he tripped up his brother twice. His name would have the sense of heel grabber or deceiver. And later Esau would say of him, Genesis 27, 36, is he not rightly named Jacob, heel, for he has cheated me these two times. When the boys grew up, verse 27, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. And therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob 
Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This first story of uh, the two brothers, the twins, there is here a slight parallel with the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. In both accounts, there's a confrontation between the shrewd and the naive. And in both passages, a birthright is traded for food. In what amounts to a trading of eternal spiritual blessings for the satisfaction of natural desires. But interestingly, while Jacob is not righteous in this episode, he was not deceptive this time. He was open and obvious and ruthless. Jacob's not good here, don't get me wrong. He does not behave honorably or with righteous generosity. He hasn't loved his neighbor as his self, but he exhibits something necessary when it comes to the blessing of God. He recognizes his need. As we compare these brothers, Jacob places great value in something to which Esau is indifferent the gift of God. Esau takes his position for granted. It is his due. Jacob readily trades away what is temporary and fleeting for something of genuine and eternal value. Esau, on the other hand, despised his birthright. That is not that he hated it, but that he valued it so cheaply. He he traded it for a bowl of stew. What I first want us to see from this final episode in the chapter, in relation to everything that we've been looking at that the chapter reveals about God's choosing, is that human choices matter. Why did Esau lose his birthright? Is it because God and his sovereignty wrested it from him and gave it over to Jacob? No. Did God revoke his humanity, change him into an automaton, and force him to sin in this way? No. God does not sin, nor does he even tempt anyone to sin, James 1.13. There is a significant interplay between the inscrutable purposes of God and the choices of the human actors. These boys are ruthless and clever seeking to achieve their goals. They are governed by their needs and fleshly desires. But all of their bargaining works out to implement the purposes of God. Those purposes already at work before their birth, the older shall serve the younger. So Esau's Forfeiture of his firstborn privileges is, according to Romans 9, a work of God's sovereign design, but not without, at the same time, being the result of Esau's voluntary self-degradation. There's no conflict here between God's sovereign choice and human choosing, and both are clearly displayed in Scripture. If anyone tells you that human choices don't matter because God is sovereign, they've lost the plot. They're not reading Scripture. Scripture clearly talks about both.
There's no conflict between God's choice and human choosing. One is an instrument for the other, and through both, the power of God is at work and will have its way. You see, only a God who is ultimately in control can promise the kinds of things that He has promised. If it were up in the air, or if the wrong person were to oppose him, God's will wouldn't be done, then he could never say, I will bring about my purposes. He would say, I will try to bring about my purposes. He would never say to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to King David, he would never say, I will produce for you an offspring that will bring about a blessing to the whole world. He would say, I will do my best. You don't see God ever say in Scripture, I'm going to give it my best try. He always claims to be the one who is sovereign, who can bring it about. But that doesn't mean that our choices don't matter. All of this anticipates Joseph's verdict against his brother's wicked acts in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so we know at both the same time, a person can make an evil choice, and it be God's sovereign will... Which brings about a good thing. God is working all things, the Bible says, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So you you might be thinking this morning, Josh, pick a lane. How can you say our choices matter when you just finished saying to us last week that our choices don't matter when it comes to salvation? And, well, I mean exactly that. The Bible consistently presents humans as agents of moral choice, responsible and held accountable for their choosing. But it also presents humanity as a whole, as a people who have made their choice when it comes to God. Like Esau, we despised our birthright. We have relinquished things of lasting spiritual value in order to satisfy our basic physical appetites. And so Romans 1, 20 and 21, they are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, we are free to choose. We are free to choose God, but no one ever does. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No, if we are to come in repentance to God and receive the inheritance He offers only to the righteous, He must choose us. This is why new birth is not only the sole means for entrance into the kingdom of God, but also the best analogy for understanding this point. Choices matter. So much of where you are at in your life now, so much of what you have accomplished as an adult will be because of the choices you've made. Did you work hard? Did you make wise decisions? So much of, of what we deal with is repercussions of bad choices and benefits of good or, or random things that happen as well. Choices matter. 
But what of the circumstances of your birth did you choose? Did you choose your family? The place where you'd be born? The order of your birth? Maybe you chose the advantages or disadvantages you would experience as a child. No. Choices matter, but not every choice is ours. So it is with the spirit life. When Jesus was approached by the religious elite in John 3, the religious ruler, Nicodemus, was quite accustomed to achievement. But in Jesus, he encounters an impossible task, one that someone else would have to accomplish for him. John 3, 3 3-7, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So entrance into God's kingdom, this is not just an analogy, it is the truth of how we become people of God. We must be born of the Spirit. And it is the perfect analogy because just like physical birth, you and I do not decide when we are born. And so when the religious leader comes to Jesus, what must I do? Jesus' answer, you must be born again, is a puzzler because he doesn't know of a way and he facetiously says, shall I crawl back into the womb? How can I pull this off? And the answer is we can't. We can't pull it off. Hopeless and helpless without the enlivening work of the Spirit. God gives new life where there was none. Those who had chosen against him, those who exercised their free will to choose not to serve God, but to rebel against him as all of humanity does. God has chosen from among us, chosen to extend compassion and mercy. It is the work of God. And so this is why it is so important in this passage to understand that God chooses Jacob. Jacob becomes the people of God and his descendants because God chose him over Esau before they were born, before they had either done anything good or bad. But their choices matter. God did not wrest Esau's birthright from him, but he sold it cheaply. He despised it. His choices matter. Jacob came to the place of knowing that he needed more. His whole life will be characterized by his wrestling, his, his even being a heel to try to get the things of God that he knows that he desperately needs. And all these things work out. Their choices matter, working out for God's purposes and God's glory. Even though they did not choose the circumstances of their birth, they make choices that matter. We need God's work. This is why we need to come to an agreement that says we did not save ourselves, but rely wholly on the work of God. So that we will recognize, as the Bible tells us, that we have nothing to boast in except to boast in Christ.
And so Peter, writing to the church, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, and I want to end with this this morning, says, to those who are elect, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me back up a bit. Those, he addresses this to the chosen ones, those who are elect, those who God has chosen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who has caused us? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power, whose power? God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Church, this will bring us to genuine worship. This will bring us to actually treat God with the honor and the glory that he deserves. When we look and say, yes, my choices matter. Yes, you have commanded me to many things, but I could never save myself. You must give new life. And we come to him with desperation. We come to him with abject need, hopeless and helpless to save ourselves. This, too, is the work of God. And he saves all who cry out to him in this way. And so we can boldly offer the gift of salvation to others in evangelism because God calls any who come to him and come to him in faith and repent and desire him to save, he will do it. And so we don't... Coming back to last week what we talked about, we don't have to add so many goofy things to the doctrine of election. The fact that God chooses who he will save is clear throughout the Bible. It is one of the major themes of just about every book of the Bible, and especially in Genesis. But so many of those corollary things that are, are just unbiblical, we don't have to add those in just because we believe what the Bible says. We don't have to equate those things we can believe what the Bible says and believe that we are called to evangelism. We can believe what the Bible says and believe that we must come in prayer to God. We can believe what the Bible says about election and also share the good news of the gospel. And finally, we can know the truth of God's work in salvation, that it is all Him, and still know that our choices matter. We are not fatalists. We're not laying back on the pillowy clouds of grace and waiting for God to do whatever He's going to do. We are actuated, activated by faith. That faith that saves is also the faith that promotes and brings us to work. It is God who both works in us to will and to act. We have the power of God's Spirit at work in us to make these choices. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would correct us, me most of all, in any area where we have put words in your mouth. The word of God is true. When we add to it, we will be shown to be liars. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us 
the wonder of relationship with you, the joy of our salvation, the fullness of mercy and grace that you have shown to us when we deserved it not, when we had made our choice and our choice was against you, our choice was to be of the world, enemies of God, and yet you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, we experience the conflict that you have placed us in, in many times and many ways. And yet you have provided for us in such a way that we can rejoice, though we experience trials of many kinds, because of the wonders of the salvation you have wrought for us in Christ Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection and glorification. And thank you that we who are second sons and daughters are elevated to the status of your firstborn inheritors with Christ. We give you praise. Amen.